Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario has July circled on the calendar to get the province's senior population fully vaccinated as part of their rollout. We'll give you the details on that. Budget debate anxiety over city's fiscal health tells a misleading story, according to a new report from C.D. Howe. We'll have the author on the show. And why won't Oxford University and the U.K. government disclose the long list of financial interests of a high-profile researcher who's been working on those projects? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get into the uh, the COVID situation. Uh, once again, as we know, uh, yesterday, uh, Rick Hillier, who's in charge of the vaccination program here in the province of Ontario, uh, laid out a, a, a roadmap, essentially, as to where this province is going to be going and who's going to get their shots and when. Global's Dave Woodard has some details. Those 80 and over will be able to book appointments online to get their vaccine by March 15th once the portal is open. Which we are now furiously working to do the final stages of preparation to test it thoroughly and then to go live with on the 15th of March. But for now, retired General Rick Hillier says the province is working on getting long-term care residents and workers their second dose of the vaccine. And while the federal government says it believes that everyone who wants a vaccine will get it by September, Hillier says he's not so sure. I'm a little bit reluctant to do that because it depends on the arrival of those vaccines. He says the timelines could be changed if more vaccines become available down the road. So a lot of criticism about uh, the Ontario plan, especially when you start comparing it to some of the things going on in other provinces. So where are we and how effective is this plan? Uh, Dr. Subban Chakaraji is with us now, the Division Head of Infectious Diseases with Trillium Health Partners at Mississauga Hospital. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What's uh, what you read on what you heard from uh, Mr. Hillier yesterday? I was looking at that timeline, and you know, I have to say that I was disappointed with it. It does seem like uh, it's taking a long time for this to be rolled out. But that said, I wonder if this is just an initial estimate, and it might actually be a lot of these dates moved up. Uh, I know that based on what I'm seeing rolled out in multiple areas, including what's happening in Peel in my own region, I think they're going to really get through a lot of vaccination pretty quickly. So I think those dates we moved up. Let's see what happens. So, but the initial, obviously, the initial dates it seems to be the, the main focus of the critique that we've heard from an awful lot of people. Uh, why would there, is, is it really supply that's holding it up? I mean, you know, a lot of people are saying, why can't you just start this yesterday? Yeah, that's exactly what my thought was as well. And I think that initially we could definitely say it was a supply. But now, listen, like we're starting to get that spigot opening and all this supply coming in. And, you know, I know that there's been a lot of criticism about uh, uh, being prepared for that supply. But, you know, based on what I'm seeing around the different health units, they've been prepared. They've been wanting to do this. I think that, uh, you know, they are probably ready to go right now. It's just, I think... Uh, for whatever reason, it's it's a little bit delayed. But, you know, I've already seen the vaccinations going out for the healthcare workers. It's been a pretty seamless process. People have been getting it. It's happening. I, uh, but I agree with you. I, you know, I want uh, uh, vaccines in Canadian arms as soon as possible. Give me a read on that, if you could, Doctor. Obviously, you're a lot closer to the ground on, on this process that's going on. Is the infrastructure in place here to do this efficiently? Absolutely. Now, now initially, uh, when we were doing things at the hospital, uh, that was set up. And, you know, of course, there's a little bit of bumps in the road, but for the most part, things got going at my own center, for example. I think one of the biggest things happening now is that we're, we're moving things out of the hospital. We're moving it into the community. And the public health units, who are the people who they have a framework to work with, they know their geography, they know their demographics, they know where they can actually do this effectively. I'm seeing that already rolled out in the Peel region that I can always speak the best for. We have seven centers, if not more, ready and gunning to go as soon as the vaccine comes. We have a, a good framework. I think going by age is the right thing to do because uh, there's lots of risk factors for severe disease. Age is the biggest one by far. 
So I think that the, the right steps are in place. We just need to get, uh, you know, uh, have the starting pistol go off and uh, get these vaccines going. But, you know, in, in the early stages, this I guess even predates the, the idea of, of the vaccination program itself. We were told with people with pre-existing conditions and medical uh, concerns uh, should move toward the front of the list, if not at the front of the list, uh, regardless of, of age. Is, is that still in play? Absolutely. And I think that we have to remember is that, like, you know, a lot of these things, like, for example, diabetes, being on immunosuppressive medications, being on cancer chemotherapy, all of these things are certainly risk factors. There's no doubt about that. But we look based on all the data that we have is that age dwarfs all of those in terms of the incidence of severe disease. But that said, uh, it's not going to be a, like a step-by-step black-and-white process. These things will be phased in, and you'll see that these highest-risk groups, for example, people that have diabetes or, or on cancer chemotherapy, they will be um, uh, in the front of the line compared to, say, a healthy 40-year-old. So this stuff is in place. It's just they're doing it based on what we know that the science uh, is telling us of the highest-risk people. I, some crazy stuff going on on social media. I don't know. You're a busy doctor. I'm not sure you've had a whole lot of time to, to see us some of the stuff. But one of the debates that's going on now is which vaccine should I get? Uh, you know, oh, I want Pfizer. No, I want Moderna. And, and of course, there are some other ones come on. Does it make any difference? You know, I, I think the answer to that question, it's, it's complicated, but I think overall for what we're looking for, no. Absolutely. Look, when you look at the trials, it's, some of it's confusing. Like, look, the um, AstraZeneca, they've mentioned a, a different dosing regimen. For Johnson & Johnson, they're giving mm-hmm. a 66% number. Pfizer, 95%. Which one should you take? When you look at everything, it's hard to compare these trials because they were done at different times, in different areas, different amounts of variant. But what we can see with all of the vaccines, all of them, they are extremely effective at reducing severe disease and turning it into something mild and reducing hospitalizations. In some of these trials, no people were hospitalized. And that's our ticket out of this, this pandemic. Because if you get something where, yeah, you have a case, but instead of being hospitalized, you have a bit of a fever at home and sniffles, I'll take that. I think that's a huge public health win. And in that situation, I would say get any vaccine. Just get something into your arm. It's going to work. It's going to have the effect that we want. But to that point, though, you don't really get a choice anyway, do you, if, if you're getting vaccinated? I mean, you know, be here at uh, 7 o'clock on Friday, and that's when you're going to get vaccinated. That's right. The, the, the choice of which vaccine to give where is being done, um, you know, uh, by the task force or whichever area you're in. But what you'll probably see, um, I suspect, especially around the world, Johnson Johnson, because it's the single dose. It doesn't require any, any uh, um, uh, complicated cold chain. And, you know, that it's relatively cheap as well. That's going to be the vaccine that's the workhorse of the world. And I think that we're going to be getting it, hopefully at some point, uh, maybe not uh, in the next month or so, but it's going to be rolled out in Canada. And I think the majority of Canadians probably at some point will get that one. But the point is it's going to make it so that we can get out of this nightmare. And that's what, what uh, I'm looking forward to. One of the biggest concerns, Doctor, that uh, you and, and many of your colleagues have talked about over the last couple of weeks, of course, is some of the variants uh, that seem to be spreading at a, at a rapid pace. And the, con- the question that was asked, of course, as soon as we got this was, well, are these vaccines going to be effective? Uh, and part B to that is I understand AstraZeneca is actually developing a variant to the vaccine that might be able to deal with this. So this is, this is a very fluid process, isn't it? 
Definitely. And I think the, uh, the variants, of course, I think uh, have been concerning. But the way that they've been sort of um, uh, portrayed, I think it's a little bit inaccurate. You know, for those of us who are very familiar with uh, viral um, diseases, we know that variants happen. When a virus has been there for a while, the, uh, these variants will arise. It happens, for example, with influenza. But mm-hmm. I think that in a way they're being treated almost like a new pandemic, which is not necessarily the case. I'm not by any uh, way saying that we shouldn't. Uh, monitor them. We should uh, respect them. Obviously, we shouldn't open things up uh, wide until we uh, know exactly how they're going to behave. But that said, a lot of what we're seeing in these experiments are more in a test tube. You're taking somebody's antibodies from their blood and seeing if it neutralizes the virus. That's not the totality of the immune response. And, you know, clinically, let's say if you have 10 times the amount of antibody versus 9 times the amount in a test tube on a paper, that makes a difference. But in person, you're still somebody who's not going to get sick from the, the virus. And that's what I think matters. So uh, I think at some point, yes, we're going to have to tinker with the vaccines a little bit. But I- in the end, this is going to become a virus that's more like influenza. It's there like every year, especially in the wintertime. We might have to get a booster vaccine. But overall, it's a great trade for what we're in right now. Are we changing our attitudes about the two dosage? And most of them are. As they say, Johnson & Johnson is the only one that seems to be single-dose right now. But as, as this is rolling out, there are some people that say, well, you know, that first dose is 90% effective after 10 to 14 days. Maybe we don't have to do this after four weeks. Are, are, we, are we changing attitudes there, Doctor? I, I think the attitude that's changing more, and we were talking this at the very beginning, is mm-hmm. how we do this in terms of I think that we should always give the second dose. Uh, based on the trial, unless we have further evidence saying that we don't give it. Now, there is some evidence that we can, you know, uh, separate them a bit. And what that brings up is, is it better to give as many people two doses as possible, or should we try to give a single dose to as many people as possible and then get their second doses later? And I think that some of the mathematical modeling suggests if we have as many people, even if it's partial protection, if you get that single dose into people, that's still going to have a big public health effect. But I think that in the end, until we have trial data, we still want to be giving that second dose to people. It might be delayed a bit, but you still want to be getting that in until we know more. And, and of course, that's it's, it's really akin to a booster, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, we can remember as kids having to get booster shots. We were all inoculated. We were kids against uh, polio and all sorts of other stuff. But there would be a booster every, what, couple of years, I guess, in that particular case. But it, it could be annually. I mean, I get a flu shot every year. That's exactly right. Now, um, in terms of the second dose of the primary regimen, that second dose is meant, it takes that response that you have from the first one and just makes it stronger. So that's the kind of the primary regimen. But yeah, exactly. Like, you know, in two years from now, maybe even one year from now, I suspect that for the next little while, we likely will be getting semi-annually or every couple of years a booster. But I uh, will say one thing that this uh, virus is not going to be in a pandemic form like it is right now where, you know, we're seeing you know, this crazy amount of explosive growth around the world, it will eventually settle down into a more, you know, seasonal virus. Very quickly, you mentioned the time frames, and you said they, they may actually just be arbitrary depending on, on supply. Uh, AstraZeneca vaccine is in the final stages, according to Health Canada and their assessment. And we, you mentioned Johnson & Johnson, and that's going to be coming sooner than later as well. Uh, with, with the influx of those two new products, doctor, do you see a change in that? And in, in other words, are we going to have enough for everybody maybe sooner than we had anticipated? 
this is, this is exactly what I was wondering myself. And I, I suspect the answer to that is yes, is that, you know, these uh, timelines that were made, and again, I'm not going to put too much stock in the timeline because to me it does seem a bit uh, stretched out than I would have expected. But that said, I think that um, uh, independent that, getting these extra vaccines, and, and there's a third one as well, Novavax might be also available. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, getting those, I do suspect that this is significantly going to contract that timeline. I'd- we have a real responsibility, of course, in the meantime, before we even roll our sleeves up here. And, of course, that's to follow the, the COVID protocol about social distancing, masking, and everything. And for, and for the most part, we're doing this. But every now and then, uh, there will be things that prop up that people say, ah, this is crazy. And one of them, of course, is a, a video that uh, was shot, uh, I guess, over the weekend of a whole bunch of people at home since in Vaughan. Uh, and uh, you know, obviously, there's not a whole lot going on there. There was no social distancing. People were crowded together. And uh, there was a great deal of fear about that. Now, you responded on Twitter. You have a different opinion than a lot of the people that did weigh in on that. Yeah, I, I do. And, and listen, I, I think that uh, what's uh, what's uh, difficult in this situation, this is a respiratory virus. We know that it can travel from person to person. But I think what's been happening of late is that we've begun to moralize what's 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 going on. So, you know, I've, uh, a lot of people were commenting that, you know, why do you need to go to home since we're in a pandemic? And you know, it's, to be honest with you, if you're doing something that's relatively low risk, it's not really my place to say what uh, somebody's preference is. So that's one of the things that I, I was worried about. And the other thing is that these types of viral videos. You may remember uh, about a year ago, or maybe a little bit less than that, was uh, the Trinity Bellwoods. All these things where mm-hmm. you're getting this viral video going out and people are getting really, really upset and wanting to blame people. Whereas the risk, you know, compared to, for example, what's happening in the largely invisible house uh, essential workplace to household transmission chain, that is a, um, you know, uh, a, a huge lion's share of the cases that we're seeing. Outbreaks at Canada Post, outbreaks at food processing plants. I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't consider both, but like, let's look at where the actual risk is and concentrate on trying to make that better rather than shaming people from being in line at uh, home since People have been cooped up for an entire year at this point in time, and something like that lineup is likely very low risk compared to what we're seeing. And we have to accept some level of risk because we're never going to be able to eliminate it. Well, and we see this on a daily basis. I mean, there's a price or a Costco just around the corner from my place here in Ancaster. And anytime I go by there, I mean, they're lined up the length of the store outside there to try to get in there. And it's not just for groceries. So, I mean, we're, we're trying, I guess, in, in our own ways to follow the protocol. But at the same time, we, we're trying to get back into our lives, too. I, I agree with you, and I think that uh, you know there has been a laser focus on COVID, COVID, COVID. And listen, there, there's times that we have to do these restrictions. We have to do lockdowns at certain times to make sure that we protect our hospitals and uh, protect people's lives. But we also have to remember that we're now a year into this. There's all sorts of... Um, uh, effects on the side that might uh, unintended consequences there's other aspects of health and I think this laser focus on case counts especially is something that we're going to have to uh, <laughs> I'm going to say wean ourselves off we have to adjust our expectations we can't eliminate this we have to mitigate risk where we can and the biggest places to do that right now I would say is in uh, essential workplaces and other high-risk settings like long-term care um, uh, shelters for people that are homeless these are all the areas where I think we can make a we, a big dent and this is where vaccination is going to be such a big part of that i'm glad you brought that up i got about a minute left but i wanted to get into that too are we looking at the wrong statistics here to try to uh, understand just how dangerous this is or how effective this is uh because you know i'll talk to people like yourself doctor and others in your field and they say look at look at the impact it's having on hospitals don't just look at case numbers that that seems to be the, the barometer that more people seem to be concerned about 
Absolutely. We have to remember, part of the reason why we uh, do these, these uh, community restrictions is to protect our hospitals. So now that things are going down, now we also know that the uh, proportion of people hospitalized because of uh, COVID is going to be less because we're vaccinating them. So now this case count number that we've been religiously watching for the past year doesn't mean as much. And that's why uh, we have to be careful still. But just because you're seeing cases swell, for example, in a third wave or a third wavelet, as long as you're seeing that the hospitals aren't having that, that massive impact, you have a bit more give in terms of, uh, uh, of a risk acceptance. We still should do things slowly and moderately, a pivot if we have to, but we should really start to uh, you know, wean ourselves off this case count and look at more informative metrics. Doctor, always important for us to get the, the message to cut through a lot of the rhetoric here. Thank you so much for the time today. It's always appreciated. You got it. My pleasure. Take care. Take care. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, of course, uh, from uh, the uh, Trillium Health Partners in Mississauga. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's a... Uh very difficult to try to arrange budgets at any level of government, of course, municipal government especially, because, well, the methodology that they use oftentimes is very confusing, not just to taxpayers, but oftentimes to the politicians that are voting on it, too. Well, the C.D. Howe Institute uh, has uh, issued a paper right now, and they compare the annual budgetary projections for spending in the bottom line in 31 different municipalities over a decade and compares them to the results reported in their year-end financial statements. And, uh, well, there are some differences, but there could be a way around that. Joining us to talk about this is Bill Robson. Uh, Bill is the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute and, and co-author of the paper. Bill, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I mentioned my listeners, of course, uh, years ago. I spent about nine years on Hamilton City Council, so I know about the municipal budget process. And anytime you start explaining it to anybody, Bill, in about ten seconds, their eyes just glaze over. And, oh, whatever, my taxes are too high. Uh, and uh, so I, I applaud you guys for jumping in here and try to add some clarity to this. Well, thanks very much. It's uh, it is a peculiar uh, situation because many cities, uh, and Hamilton is among them, uh, actually have quite a good story to tell. Uh, we, we all know that governments could spend our money more wisely. And, and one of the reasons that we do this study is because we think if the budgeting process were better, uh, you would end up with better decisions. But um, there's a lot to like about the way many cities uh, run. And I'll just say with respect to Hamilton, if you look at the financial statements, so not the budget, but if you look at the financial statements, uh, we don't have 2020 yet, it's uh, too early, but 2019, um, there are a lot of uh, good results reported. Uh, the city ran a sizable surplus. Its capacity to deliver services improved. Uh, there are nice tables to show how the money got spent uh, and uh, uh, what type of uh, spending and where the revenue came from. They even give you these five-year uh, reviews. I mean, all kinds of interesting information, and none of that is in the budget. None of those numbers are in the budget. It's like a completely different world when you get to budget time, and that's weird. Why not? Well, it's, um, there, there are always historical reasons for these things. Uh, cities, uh, of course, have been running for, for, for centuries. And when uh, we, uh, you know, the municipalities, the big municipalities in, Canada, for, in Canada first got started, life was a lot simpler. I mean, councillors would debate individual items like whether to buy a horse or, uh, you know, individual salaries. And um, they they paid close attention to cash because back in those days uh, that was that was quite a concern. 
Uh, over time, a lot of things have changed, uh, including governments getting bigger and more complex. And we've devised better methods, I would say, to uh, track uh, how governments are performing. That's what public sector accounting standards are all about. And that's what the financial statements are all about. But the budgets are, are kind of stuck in this uh, prior age. And very often when you ask people, why do you do it this way? Why don't you... Uh, 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 provide the same numbers that you do in the financial statements like businesses do and not-for-profits do and, and, and provincial and, and federal governments do. And you just get this kind of, well, that's how we've always done it and it would confuse people if we changed. And I don't think that's a very good reason. Oh, no, no. I mean, they're always resistant to change, but you have to you know, peel back a few layers and say, well, why, why, why are you resistant to it? Uh, I'm just looking at the numbers here that you just referenced, too. I mean, uh, in 2019, uh, Hamilton did pretty well, the, the surplus $268 million. London, our listeners at uh, CFPL London, uh, $222 million. Uh, but everything changed in 2020, didn't it? Well, everything did change in 2020, and one of the things that's naturally going to be a focus of concern is uh, the state of municipal finances. Um, and I, I, we're in a funny position putting this report out because uh, some people who have looked at it have said, well, you seem to be criticizing the cities for running surpluses. Um, and no, not at all. I, I wish that other levels of government were run as financially responsibly as cities are. And I really want to underline that just in Hamilton's case or in London's case. And in fact, just about everywhere you look in the country, cities are adding to their capacity to deliver services. That's what those surpluses tell you. They are... Uh, yeah, you know they're putting assets in place, and 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 they are actually quite financially resilient. Now they're going to be stressed in 2020, but there's a level of anxiety, uh, and 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 a level of short-sightedness, I think, about what's going on right now that's a bit unnecessary because uh, we are actually at the municipal level starting from a much more solid base than we often think. And in a, a year when when businesses are so stressed, I mean, many of them have been uh, forcibly closed, uh, some for, for most of the year. Um, it would be very helpful, I think, for people to realize uh, it's not as desperate as all that. There's a little bit of flexibility on the revenue side. Uh, we're going to get through this all right. Uh, but the trouble is that nobody's looking at the right numbers at budget time. And so uh, you're not getting that kind of a conversation. It's, it, the, the level of anxiety is a little overdone. Well, and we've talked about that on our program, and I'm sure it's going on in every city right across the country, Bill. I mean, because of the pandemic and because of the shutdowns that have occurred and, and the economic impact that that's had, what we're hearing mostly from our municipal councils is uh, we're losing billions of dollars. You know, the, we don't have transit this. We don't have income coming in. You know, we had to shut down arenas, so user fees aren't there. And, and we're, we're being painted a picture of a very precarious uh, situation. And then you turn around and you look at, well, wait a second, look at the money that you've got here in surplus uh, you're not in such bad shape after all and, and people don't seem to equate uh, one with the other right now like why why are you telling me the sky is falling at the same time you've got a sizable amount of money sitting there well the, the you you commented already on the 2019 results in hamilton and I, i'll just expand a little bit sure uh, you talked about that surplus of 268 million uh, and and uh, that was about 100 million more than budgeted. Revenue came in a little above projections and expense a bit below projections. I mean, as a as a householder or business, if you had that kind of a result, you'd say uh, that's a good thing. You kind of did better on both sides, and and that's entirely true. But what's what's the surprise here? What people don't 
uh, no, because nobody mentioned it at budget time, is that the city was actually budgeting for a fairly substantial surplus. Now, that's a good thing. Um, uh, you want the city's capacity to deliver uh, services to continue to grow. Um, but uh, when, you're, when you're heading into a tight year, it's appropriate to focus on uh, what's happening on the revenue side, what's happening on the expense side. There's, I, I'm very sympathetic to people who think you, you should see some trimming of expenses at the municipal level because the private sector's taken a colossal hit here. Um, and uh, I think we should be sharing the pain a little more evenly and looking for those savings where we can where we can find them. But there is also a need for cities to be flexible in terms of their revenues and so on. Uh, and and uh, uh, also, as I said earlier, I'll just underline again, you know, there's a level of, of panic about this, a level of crisis about this, uh, softening us up for whatever kind of tax increase or, you know, these development charges that they levy for projects that often don't get built for years. Uh, I think we just need a more sensible debate about that. And uh, uh, I think a more transparent budgeting process would be a good step forward. Well, and we're starting to get some signs of that. I'm, I'm not suggesting, you know, we're near the end here. We don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, there are some pretty positive signs. And, and to your point, Bill, uh, economists that I've talked to over the last couple of weeks especially are saying, look, this is not like the 09 recession. You can't compare that. This is apples and oranges. Uh, that was a financial recession caused by financial mismanagement, you know, the, the, the stuff down in the States and everything else, and it bled right around and, and it was, had a global impact. Uh, this is because of a pandemic. When the pandemic is over, they feel that there's going to be a much faster to rebound. In fact, uh, some of the numbers indicate this already started. So I would imagine municipalities would be in the same situation. Well, I think that's true. And one of the things that uh, uh, we focus on in this report that's, that's relevant to what you've just said is uh, the capital side. The big discrepancy between how cities budget and how they report their results has to do with capital. It's uh, uh, they, they, they use cash accounting for these big expensive projects that are going to last for years and years. And that doesn't make any sense at all. If you're a household doing your budget, uh, you know, you, you think of a car or a refrigerator or something that's going to last a while as uh, an asset that's going to deliver services for a long time. Uh, businesses and, uh, and, and other governments uh, write these things down over a period of time, but cities treat them like cash. And one of the things that that promotes is very short-sighted thinking about your capital projects. If in a year when things are really tight, a city really cuts back on capital projects, uh, you know, lets the roads go unpaved and, and, and doesn't replace the pipes that need replacing and neglects other types of infrastructure, um, that's just a silly decision. And uh, I would like to see more of this uh, presentation of budgets the same way that they do their financial statements, because I think that it would result in better decisions about capital, including when you run into a temporary squeeze, you don't suddenly delay a whole lot of projects that would make sense in the long run. Is it good business or bad business to start dipping from one to the other? I mean, because in, in good times, most city councils that I've talked about in, in the last number of years don't like to touch the capital budget at all. I mean, they kind of take the recommendations from staff and say those are the long-term projects, and we're kind of married to those. Uh, where they want to do the fiddling around and try to find the efficiencies is, is in the operating budget because, because that's, that's malleable. They can take things out and put things back in, and as you say, there's a revenue source for it. Well, I think it does naturally attract more of the attention, but that's partly because of the way the budgets are presented. Um, you've got this, I mean, it's part and parcel of this weird non-transparency at budget time that they don't consider the two together. And again, I just think this is so, uh, it's, it's kind of prehistoric, it's kind of archaic, because um, 
uh, anybody uh, else who's running a business, and even in a household budget, I mean, you don't budget formally in a household the same way that you do uh, in a business or, or in government, but you, you don't treat these long-lived assets the same way that you do the, the shorter-lived assets. And so um, I, I do think that it's appropriate to consider the two together. And when you look back on how governments have responded, it's true what you're saying about the focus of the operating budget, but capital tends to get squeezed during recessions. Uh, there's there tends to be this uh, uh, this you know they they look at these really big projects which the way they budget they you know they 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 treat the whole outlay as though it was like a cup of coffee that it was going to be here today and gone tomorrow which of course is entirely the wrong way to think about infrastructure and so you do tend to see a bit of a boom and a bust cycle when it comes to capital spending that just doesn't make sense uh, I believe uh, and uh, I'd love to see this proposition tested that uh, the cities that um, uh, budget more the way that they uh, report their results and treat capital in that way are going to make better budgeting decisions. And one of the things that's nice to see across the country, it hasn't happened in Hamilton or London yet, uh, but we are seeing more cities uh, present those uh, uh, the, the numbers in their budgets that are that are comparable to the ones that they will report at the end of the year. So I think the change is coming. I think it's a good thing. Uh, and if I'm right, uh, we will see better decisions about capital and operating both once uh, councillors are given that fuller picture. You really wonder about the reticence, and I, I guess one of the concerns here, as you probably found out as you were doing the analysis on this bill, is is there's so many different systems in place in different parts of the country right now. Uh, and I get that, okay, they don't like change, but I mean, the concern that we've talked about, with, especially in politics, and especially now, uh, because there's money going out the door all the time now for pandemic relief programs, is transparency. And, and the process that you're talking about is much more transparent than what a lot of cities are doing now. Well, I think that's I think that's a, a fundamentally important point. Um, one of the kinds of pushback that we've had from people in city governments uh, to this recommendation we make that they should report and budget on the same basis is that if if if, if councillors and voters knew that cities were actually planning on running surpluses, they would demand more spending and lower taxes in the here and now, and, and the city would be in in less viable shape. Uh, in the future. And I understand that concern. Um, but at the same time, I think that you, you have to weigh against that this disconnected exists. And you referred to it right at the beginning of this conversation, um, where where people look at the budgeting process, and they roll their eyes, and they say, I can't make any sense out of this. And, and that kind of a disconnect is a problem as well. In the short run, it may give staff a little bit more autonomy and maybe even increase their scope to do some fiscally responsible things to make sure that that budget surplus is going to be there. But in the longer run, and if you think of that sort of general disengagement and cynicism on the part of the population, I just don't think that can be a good thing. Well, and, and maybe one of the reasons for looking at this and, and considering some of the alternatives you've talked about here is uh, that group of people that, whose eyes glaze over and don't quite understand it, uh, some of those are elected officials. Uh, more than a few I've ever run into over the years, too. But they're not going to admit that. They're not going to say, yeah, look, at, I, I know I'm your counselor, but I have no idea what they're talking about here. Uh, I'm not a numbers guy. Uh, but if you made it more transparent for them to understand and for the, the taxpayers to understand, you'd probably get a lot less carping from people that say, I'm getting a raw deal here. Well, they certainly wouldn't have much of an excuse for making that claim if the numbers were laid out transparently. But as things are, I think it's quite reasonable. And it's too bad that more people aren't willing to say, I just, 
I just don't get it. I mean, if you think of the budget preparation process that you do, uh, uh, if you're not in a municipal government, if you're in some other government or you're, you're a business or a not-for-profit, and even for a household, what's the first question you ask as you're thinking about the future? You want to know what happened before. You want to know, like, what did we spend on food? What did we spend on clothing? Um, and the cities are unique in not providing that information in a way that uh, allows people to make those comparisons. I'll just mention with respect to Hamilton itself, if you look back at the types of calculations that somebody who was motivated and can add and subtract but not an expert on the budgeting process would have made over the last decade, uh, they would have said Hamilton was off. Uh, its, its annual error in its budget projections for its spending was about 6% every year, uh, either over or under. If they had just presented uh, the numbers that they um, uh, uh, then show you in the financial statements later, uh, the average error would have been much, much smaller than that. It would have been about one and a half percent. That's a big difference when it comes to people's uh, desire to engage in the process. If you think it's wildly inaccurate, why would you bother? But if you understand that the errors that happen are the kinds of errors that, you know, just happen with life generally, that's a whole different story. And I think it would, it would induce people to pay more attention to the numbers and it would be easier for them to do it. Uh, a lot of us are in the same boat here from a, a standpoint of, of, you know, the, the methodology that they're using. Uh, as you did the, the analysis on this, is, is there one area or a couple of cities that are, that are getting it right and doing it the way they should be doing it? Well, British Columbia is the province where you see the cities that were the quickest to start to present these numbers in a way that uh, uh, is easier for people to take in and make these comparisons. And it's partly that they've got the consistent accounting and the budget and the financial statements. That's a, a key step. And as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing more cities do that. Uh, but the other thing that they do is they just present the numbers up front where people can find them easily uh, and uh, in, in the budgets. And, um, you know, you, you shouldn't. I mean, you've been a counselor, so you know the importance of that. People don't have a ton of time. People are not experts. People get easily put off if they start to find numbers that look like they might be the right numbers, but but potentially aren't. Um, if I go back to Hamilton's financial statements, I want to pay the compliments again. If if uh, people don't like to look backwards as much as they like to look forwards, and I get that, but if you if you look at Hamilton's financial statements, it's not hard to find the right numbers. They're clearly identified. It's a very informative layout. They've got that five-year review that I referred to. I think it's on page six of the document. So you don't have to flip hundreds of pages in to find it. Um, and I think when you look across the country, uh, particularly in British Columbia, but increasingly here in Ontario, as well, you're seeing municipalities that are doing that. They're they're putting the key numbers uh, in a way that you can make the comparisons, and they're easy to identify. Uh, so we're seeing progress there. And uh, as I say, I, I hope that the cities that aren't doing it are going to look around and say, "Hey, if they're doing it, why can't we?" Well, and to that point, uh, I know that a few years ago during that analysis, Hamilton got a lot of criticism for uh, th- their methodology, and, and clearly they, they've, they've listened and they've made some modifications to it, so good on them for doing that. Uh, very informative report. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking with you. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest, and uh, I hope that uh, listeners who have previously thought this was uh, uh, just a hopeless mess will uh, be a little readier to tackle it because when you're seeing problems in these documents, don't assume that it's you that's uh, at fault. It's uh, uh, I think that they should be made possible for any engaged citizen to follow. Absolutely. Thanks again, Bill. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Okay, thank you.
Bill Robson, CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute and author of the paper that we just talked about. You can go to their webpage, by the way. The whole report's there. It's about 18, 19 pages long, and uh, it's an interesting read. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, lack of transparency, uh, some finagling that's going on, and maybe even governments that are uh, ignoring freedom of information requests. It's all wrapped up into some investigative reporting that's being done uh, in the U.K. right now. And it has to do with, uh, well, the development of the vaccines. And we all know that they went at warp speed to use the phrase of the day, uh, to make this thing happen. But when that happens, uh, you know, there's a lot of money exchanged. There's big pharma, of course. Uh, we've talked about some of the concerns and the indications about uh, the money that gets, uh, well, to whom? We don't know. That goes all over the place. And one particular individual uh, that seems to be at the center of this is uh, one Dr. John Bell and uh, from Oxford University. That's right, the uh, Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine that was developed. And uh, the... Uh, People that are investigating this are having an awful difficult time trying to get information about this. Uh, Paul D. Thacker is a freelance journalist with the British Medical Journal and a former investigator for the U.S. Senate and Safra Ethics Center at Harvard, uh, has uh, done a great deal of work on this, and we're pleased to welcome Paul Thacker to the uh, Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Paul, thank you for the time. Uh, good to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me on today, Bill. Well, you've done an awful lot of work on this. I just read the overview on this, and uh, we should mention, by the way, that uh, the individual we're talking about, Dr. John Bell, is actually a Canadian uh, from Edmonton initially and has been at Oxford for quite some time uh, and has uh, he's, he's uh, made himself well-known. His, his presence and his, his expertise, I guess, is it, it being used in many different circles right now, and, and you and, and I, others are just looking for some information about, well, the finances involved in this, which are pretty murky at this stage, Paul. Well, the issue is that I started, when I first started looking into this whole issue, um, we were, uh, I came away with trying to understand, John Bell has a position at Oxford University, he's a Regis um, professor, which is an appointment, I guess, that comes through the Queen, it's a very prestigious um, position, so he has a position at Oxford, but I can't tell who he actually works for, (laughs) he has so many different positions he's working all over in different capacities for the british government he's on different boards of various companies and so he's nominally oxford professor but what he really does throughout the day and who he's really working for i can't tell he's on the vaccine task force as well is is that a paying job or is that a volunteer situation or do you know so my understanding is that vaccine task force now is, is basically done. That was involved with most uh, with getting the, um, the vaccine sort of up and going. Um, what was interesting is when it was first announced, he was announced as um, one of the members. And yet when I contacted the government about that to see his financial conflict forms, they then changed it and said he was on this expert advisory group to the task force. So he is one step removed. Um, also on that task force is AstraZeneca. And what's interesting is, is then the money from the British government goes to Oxford and the group they're working with is AstraZeneca. And <laughs> what I came away from this was, I mean, look, I'm an American, as you can tell from my accent. I'm American yeah. and I'm living in Spain. I'm not living in the UK. So this doesn't necessarily concern me directly. But if I was a British citizen or if I was living in England and paying taxes, I would be very concerned about what my taxes were going towards because well, you can't tell who's making these decisions and why they're making these decisions. We well, don't and what know influence? what John Bell's investments have. We don't, know, we don't know anything about John Bell's investments at all. 
Well, the obvious question here is, I mean, the, the, the statement I said here says uh, Oxford has admitted that, uh, that Dr. Bell has a long list of financial interests. Uh, so uh, question one is, well, where's that list? They don't want to show you. No, they don't want to show it. Um, they actually, when, when I contacted the government, um, they decided within 24 – what I did was I sent questions to the government initially in November and then wrote up a story in December – after that story came out, I waited a few more days, and then I set a Freedom of Information request in to see what they might be hiding and catching their emails. And that's when I got them discussing how they were going to respond to me, and I figured out that they'd already made the decision within 24 hours after I sent the questions to say, we're not going to send them the forms. And then the next day, or later that same day, they then began discussing, well, what if this guy, they called me a, a chap with a bee in his bonnet, what if he sends a Freedom of Information Act request? Like, do we have to respond to that? And they began discussing that more and more. And then you see the following day, because I gave them two days to respond, you see their four official clearance um, response coming. And that's when you see just, I mean, a whole field of emails and names blacked out. Um, and so that raised my suspicion, because the first thing I thought is, why are they hiding who's responding to me? And there had just been a report come out from a group called Open Democracy that within the British government, there is a unit within the cabinet office, which is a political um, department within the government, that is clearing all freedom of information requests. So anything that's considered sensitive goes through this special government group. And also they were discussing me, which I mean, look, what my particular opinions are doesn't, don't mean anything. I'm just a journalist asking sure. questions. And yeah, but, they were characterizing me as an extremist for asking these questions. But this is this is akin to the, to the Nixon enemies list, isn't it? I don't think it's quite that. I mean, it's just I, the problem is again. No, but they they American, flagged you though. They flagged you as a troublemaker, right? But the thing is, is as an American, I don't totally understand all of you know British culture. It's still somewhat foreign to me, um, and so I think there's always been much more of a tightly controlled. Um, issue with the British government. They're much less transparent, I my understanding is, than the American government. Um, but, you know, it wasn't just me. What their support came out is it's, it's journalists at other media outlets, the Times, um, the BBC, anyone who's asking hard questions who doesn't just want to take a government official and put them on TV or put them in their news story and just quote what they say. You know, when you start to ask hard questions, they don't want to respond. Because since I asked those questions about John Bell, and he has refused to reply to me directly, um, he has been on a slew of different media programs talking about vaccine policy in the UK. But he won't respond to any of these questions. He wants to talk about the success, but not that. But it, it's interesting when you start doing investigative journalism, such as you were doing on that particular file, all of a sudden you, the, you, you've through the British government and their inaction or their protocol or whatever that, that they've developed about these freedom of information requests, uh, you're getting into a whole different realm here right now about how the government handles these things. I mean, if in fact, if, if it's being vetted through this group uh, and, and delayed, I mean, whatever the case might be, the whole term of freedom of information is somewhat oxymoronic, isn't it? To some degree, yes. But like this also happens, like I'm much more familiar with the process in the state. It also happens in the states. So, for instance, because I know that certain group, certain government agencies will will be aware of who I am, 
and will be much more sensitive to questions for me. I've used like proxies to send FOIAs down so they don't see my name. <laughs> you know, that's a kind of a common trick in investigative journalism because you know that as soon as they spot you as a troublemaker, they're much more likely to not release information, to redact it. So, but, but the thing you have to understand is, is that like, this is the very first story I've ever done about the British government. So they don't really know anything about me. So like, how did they know that, you know, I'm some sort of, you know, I've got, I'm some, I've got, you know, a lot of extreme positions. The only thing I can think of, they must've been like looking into my background. They're either reading stories that I've written, you know, they're, they're going through my Twitter account, you know, I mean, I worked for a Republican Senator in the United States, so I don't know like how extreme you can be, you know, anti-government or anti, you know, corporation if you've worked for a Republican Senator in the United States. No, I understand that, but I mean, you're asking uncomfortable questions though, and, and that's, I, I think, what's motivating them to, to try to throw roadblocks up here. I mean, the, the overriding question, I guess, when you began this whole enterprise is, uh, what is Dr. Bell's relationship with uh, AstraZeneca? Uh, we know he's employed by Oxford University. Is is he also employed by AstraZeneca and some of these other agencies that he's quote unquote consulting with? It's it's a pretty well, simple question. Yeah, it is. Um, but I, I think it gets more like I've gotten people call me and told me there's there's other companies he seems to be working with that are they're in in other junctures along the supply chain of the vaccine because you know vaccines are it's a it's a much more complicated there's a dis distribution process. And so he seems to be involved in other companies along this process. But what those companies actually are, we don't know. And I don't know. I, I just I think for me, the thing that kind of sticks with me is I don't understand why there's not more people upset in England about this, because, um, you know, they've really thrown a lot of money out the door. The British government has to try to deal with the coronavirus, and, and not always in very financially prudent manner. It, what's interesting about this, too, is, you know, whatever they have labeled you as, uh, uh, I mean, you, yes, you are a freelance writer, but, I mean, you're working for the British Medical Journal. I mean, this is not some left-wing rag, you know, that we're trying to, you know, try to subvert the government with or something. You're, you're basically seeking information. Yeah, I know. It's pretty basic information. It's, it's, it's just common um, one of the things you have to understand, though, also is is that these financial entanglements in biomedicine are so extensive and they're so common. When I was in the United States, when I worked in the Senate, I worked on a bill which they're now they've now tried to get passed in also in Ontario. I actually spoke with the Ontario Health Minister a few years ago. I flew to Toronto to speak with him. It was a physician at the time who was the health minister. I'm sorry? It's probably Eric Hoskins. Correct. Right, right, Mr. Hoskins. I spoke with Eric Hoskins because he was trying to implement a similar law in Ontario, which would require companies to begin disclosing, the companies would, their relationships with physicians. Now, we passed this law in the United States, which I drafted and then helped to push through. It's called the Physician Payment Sunshine Act. And so now in the United States, you have the ability to look up on a government website a physician's name to see who they might be taking money from, what companies. A lot of other countries don't have that. So Mr. Hoskins tried to get something like that done um, in Ontario. I, you know, I spoke with him once with a um, professor from um, University of Toronto. We had a private meeting with him. This was a few years back. Um, and, you know, England's been trying to pass a similar law. 
because what we know what happens is, is these physicians end up hiding this stuff. Um, you know, we had a similar problem in the United States with the guy running Operation Warp Speed, Monsef Leawi. Um, you know, he was a former GSK official, and um, no one knew who he had his investments with. And the concern here is very similar, although not exactly the same, as, as the reason why we expect transparency from elected officials. And I understand, okay, that's taxpayers' money that pays for that. But these people, and in Dr. Bell's case, but there's many more like Dr. Bell, do influence policy and do influence government decisions. I mean, as to where the funding is going to go and things of this nature right now, too. And you kind of like to know the trail here. You know, who, you know, who is compensating this individual? How much influence does that have? And is it influencing the, the opinions of not just this doctor but if this is also a doctor that's advocating and, and advising government agencies on this too i mean there's a, a the old thing about follow the money i mean that's all you're trying to do here isn't it yeah and you know when when we first started working on the, the bill this is going back in 2007 and i was in the senate reporters would be asking well you're working for a senator who takes money from x y and z and i always tell them like yeah all of the campaign finances are publicly available you can look those things up the other thing, too, is, is that, you know, we know from research that even small amounts of money can influence physicians. And the thing that I think, which is true, is that a physician, you, you, you are much more likely, your health is much more determined by your doctor than by a politician. And so you should be much more concerned about the financial influence that is affecting the behavior of physicians I think, for your personal health than the financial influence of a politician, especially when you can look up those you know, campaign donations. Well, I mean, this is a life and death situation. Let's face it. I mean, this is a deadly virus, and, and we're all looking for something like this. And, I, and you know, it's, that's why we're so excited about the fact that the vaccines are available. But this is simply a matter of compensation and government money that's involved in this as well. And uh, I, I can't understand. Well, I guess I can understand the reticence from those people to do this. But uh, it's, it's, it's a can of worms now that you've uncovered here. Where are you with this now, Paul? So um, I don't want to say we have another story coming out. We're taking a look at some other people um, involved in uh, the vaccine approval process, and we're expanding out and looking into other countries as well. Um, because the issue is, I mean, look, healthcare is about, it, it, there's two things you really want out of healthcare. What you want is you want a product, whether it's a drug, a vaccine, a device, whatever. You want something that's good, right? Something that's, that's good and safe but also at a good cost. It's like anything when you buy anything in life. And what this money does is, I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of scientific literature on this. What this money in healthcare does is it drives up costs and increases the likelihood that something is not going to be good that you're going to get. Paul D. Thacker, a freelance journalist with the British Medical Journal. A fascinating story. Uh, we'll follow this. I'm obviously going to check it out on the webpage if any of our listeners want to get some more details about this. Uh, and uh, I wish you good luck with this. I, I, I know doors get slammed in your face when you do this kind of journalism, but uh, uh, persistence obviously is the key, and you already have that in spades. So I wish you best of luck with this, Paul. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Take care. Paul D. Thacker, of course, uh, with the British Medical Journal, and uh, just trying to get some answers about, you know, following the money. And, and again, there's a legitimate concern, I think, about big pharma. That doesn't mean they're all bad people by any stretch of the imagination. But money does influence political decisions and where political money actually goes in situations like that. And transparency is never a bad idea.
although the people that are trying to hide something usually would disagree with that. And uh, when you're in government, you can do that sort of thing. But, I mean, we've gone through this before, haven't we, in this country? Uh, I've talked to a number of journalists over the years that have tried to look into any number of financial things involving government, and they'll fire, file rather freedom of information requests. And it's, it's like trying to push a rock uphill to try to get the government to respond to some of these things. And it takes weeks and months and sometimes two or three different times to apply for it. And uh, at the end of the day, if the journalist is, is fortunate, they do get a document that they were seeking. But just like the Mueller report from a couple of years ago now, it's so heavily redacted, it's not worth much of anything to anybody there. Because uh, when they put the black market through it, you don't know what they're blocking out. They're going to say it could be sensitive material, could be personal feelings, it could be material to do with personnel files. You don't know that. It just might be something that might embarrass them. And therein lies the problem uh, when they see these requests are finally uh, addressed by government officials. And it's something that, uh, that is an ongoing problem. And I know that many people uh, that are doing investigative journalism are very frustrated by this. So uh, we wish Paul Thacker the best with his investigation. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.